people who, uh, folks who teach mindfulness. And we were having a discussion about mindfulness and the practice in, in general. And there seemed to be some confusion around whether there ought to be thinking or if the goal of meditation is to not think. And how many people have heard that? How many people think you're doing okay if there's no thinking going on? Yeah, okay. All right, uh, how many people are new to the practice? Anybody here new? Okay, thanks, so I probably should um, set it up for you a little bit. So anyway, so I was doing this, this training and this woman that was observing the training, she got very upset at me because I used to say to the guys, um, one of my favorite philosophers is Dr. Dre. And if you guys know hip hop, you know, he, he's a hip hop artist and one of his favorite lines of his song is, I have my mind on money and money on my mind. That's meditation. And so when I said that to this, this woman, she got very upset. She said, that's not meditation. I said, it is. Whatever your mind is on is, is your meditation. So we got into this heated argument about it and it was this idea that somehow uh, if you're meditating, you shouldn't be thinking, and you should just be observing what's going on. Well, we can debate about that, but what I decided to do is let's talk about um, some of the history of Buddhism and the history based on the no other than the, um, than the Buddha's experience. When the Buddha got enlightened, what, what happened, I don't know if you folks know this or not, but he was going into all these austerity practices, you know, eating very little, and, and he realized that he had to do the middle way, not, you know, not overindulgence, but, but taking enough, you know, uh, nutriment to be able to use the mind and, and that sort of thing. So when he did that, he had five, um, five disciples that, that thought he was living the extravagant life, and they kind of left him. And actually, when he sat under the tree and he was by himself, he remembered something that happened when he was young and he was watching a plowing festival. And he went in, he was doing, uh, he was meditating using the awareness of breathing, what we call Anapanasati, or the awareness of breathing in and breathing out. So he went back to that practice and he developed uh, what we call the jhanas, which is the deep states of concentration. So when you're in these deep states of concentration, the John is the hindrances are at, at abeyance. In other words, there's, um, so you start off with directed thought or what we call applied thought. And with the application of applied thought, you, you sustain, it becomes sustained thought. And because you're able to sustain it, you experience this excitation. And from the excitation, you experience happiness. And from the happiness, you experience um, one-pointedness. And so it's not really important um, to get into all the jhanas, but he, he got into a um, deep state of concentration. And through all the years prior to that, he had done all these concentration practices with all the masters, and he mastered concentration. But the problem was, after he got out of the concentrated state, he still, he still was deluded, or he still had suffering. And so it's, it was really clear to him that that's not the, the path to liberation. So he got into this deep state, and then when he got into the deep state, he directed his mind towards his past lives. And I think, how does it, what's the term he used? The reminiscence of past births. So he just 
took his mind and directed it toward his past births. And so he went through many, many births. And time is an interesting thing because he went through 100,000 births, so I don't know how long it takes, but this all happened in the first watch of the night, which is, you know, I think, watch, is it two hours or four hours? I don't remember. I think it's four hours or two hours. Well, anyway, it would, sure, to go through 100,000, that's a, that's a lot of births. <laughs> but for whatever reason, I guess you go beyond time and you, and you, you go through this, but he went through all this stuff, and he saw, so he went through, you know, all his past um, births. And then the second thing he, he directed it towards was the disappearing, disappearing and reappearing of beings. So he's seen, okay, so this person had this kind of life, and then they would reappear this way, or they would disappear. And then he went to the th third watch. He, he meditated on, or he directed his mind towards what they call the comprehension of the cessation of corruptions. And so it's basically like, like this is sorrow, this is the arising of sorrow, this is the cessation of sorrow, this is the path leading to the cessation of sorrow. So while he was directing his mind or thinking, he became enlightened. He got deliberation. And then how did he celebrate his, his enlightenment? For he sat under the bow tree for seven days and he contemplated, contemplated dependent origination. And so for people to say that thinking is not involved, that's not his experience. His experience is wise reflecting, reflecting on things, using the mind to investigate, to explore. And so this idea of wise reflection, and if that's not enough for you, um, his son uh, joined the order of monks, and he used to teach his son. And what did he teach his son? Wise reflection. He would talk to him about how you create suffering through word, thought, and deed. And he said that before you do something, you have to contemplate, uh, is this skillful or is it unskillful? Does it lead to harm to yourself or to others or to yourself and others? And if it does, you should not do it. If it leads to peace, it leads to ease, it leads to happiness to yourself or others or to both, you should do it. So it's just reflecting before you do something, during the activity itself, and afterwards, that there's this wise reflecting, thinking about, well, what's going on here? And of course, if you've been around the practice, we talk about mindfulness, but we also talk about what we call clear comprehension. And there's four clear comprehensions, which is another way of reflecting, and that is being clear about what you're doing, what's your purpose. So it's, it's, it's clear comprehension of purpose. So why am I doing this? What's my motivation? What's my intention? And then the second part of that is what we call uh, suitability, is what's the best way to do it? And then the third part of it, which I think is really interesting, is during the day. Th this has to do with activity. So when during the day, you're supposed to have your object of awareness throughout the day. The domain of practice is all day long, 24-7. And it's not like this, this efforting, but it's, you know, paying attention. Like, okay, where's my breathing? Where's my body? Um, uh, what am, you know, am I moving towards something? Am I moving away from it? Even to the point of when you're moving your limbs, when you're standing up, when you're sitting, when you're lying down, to be comprehend, clearly comprehend that you're doing that. Now, to me, that that is very active, or is what I call directed thought, just like we talked about applied thought so it becomes sustained so that we get to the concentration. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. And so 
just those two examples of the Buddha and, and teaching his son wise reflection and there's a whole, there's, there's a suttas that talk about it even in the um, Satipatthana Sutta which is the development of mindfulness is all about contemplating the body contemplating you know and then the fourth aspect of clear comprehension is is reality which is the fact that everything is impermanent so that the process is you actually get an intellectual understanding of impermanence and then you contemplate and you see if it's true and it's the same when you think about because things are impermanent there's suffering and and there's suffering because there's no satisfaction in things because they change. And so for some of us, if we think about our experience, and this is where reflection can help, is that you're enjoying it, but you know it's not going to last. <laughs> you know it's not going to last. And so some of us will get to the point where we will be discouraged and depressed instead of enjoying it while it's there. Because <laughs> we're, we're looking, oh, this is going to last. I remember before it didn't last, it's not going to last now, it's going to be awful. And we go through this, and the interesting thing is we're not even consistent because the flip side of that is when things are bad or we're in, we're in pain, we think it's never going to end. <laughs> we don't realize that, you know, this too shall pass. And if somebody says that, I don't want to hear that. I don't want, if somebody tells me this too is going to pass one more time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them where to go or whatever. I'm just going to scream. And so it, it's, it's this, you know, and it's, and it's funny because... If you think about it, the way the Buddha got involved in this, because he saw, he saw an old person, he saw a sick person, he saw a dying, uh, you know, a person that was dead. Um, and the interesting thing is, he said to himself in reflection, I too am subject to decay. And so if you really think about the, the lengths we go to denying death or denying illness, or denying the fact that we get old. Everything is, uh, we want the young people. We want, you want to stay young forever. The reality is, that's part of life. But we don't act like it's supposed to happen. When somebody dies, we act like it's, we're surprised. <laughs> when somebody gets sick, we're surprised. We're devastated. Somebody gets old. We get old. Oh, man. It's, it's, it's devastating. But that's, that is what, what life is about. And so if we realize that things rise and pass away, good, bad, ugly, whatever, that you know, we get old, we die, we get sick. And it's not to be pessimistic about that. It's really about not being surprised when it happens and reflect on it. I'll give you an example of how this could be helpful. When I used to sit here a lot, and I lived here for six years, and I remember Larry Rosenberg he was one of the uh, guiding teachers. He used to, we used to do, have this class where we would meditate on death. You know, so it would go something like, you know, that, that when we die, you know, all of this stuff we have, we can't take it with us. The only thing we really can take with us is, is our morality or, or what, 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 what uh, fruits we develop. You know, you reap what you sow. So if we're doing good works and we're doing things, that's the only thing that you can really re rely on to take you to the next level. But all your wealth, all your relationships, you know, all of your, you know, in indulgences or even your family, friends, relatives, they don't go with us. They get left behind. 
And so just meditating on this, and it's interesting because I have, um, I was watching a movie, DirecTV, and I don't, I don't think the movie was that old, but the new DirecTV, when you press on information, it gives you cast and, and crew, and when you switch on it, it tells you when the person was born and whether they were alive or not. Sometimes you don't get any information. I was watching some movie, and some of them dudes were born in the 1800s, 1875 or 1880, and you know, I'd go through that dead, 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 old, <laughs> sick, you know, and, it, and it's like right there, it's right there in front of us that, you know, that this is this is our lot, you know, that things, things are impermanent. You know, because of that, we suffer. And then the last one, which is the last one to let go of is this illusion of separateness, or that we're a separate being, and that when I do something or when I meditate, it's just about me, or when I, when I do something that's unskillful, it's all about me. You know, we know from quantum physics and all this, and a lot of the research is catching up with these teachings, that, um, you know, whatever we do, they call it the Akashic Records, whatever we do gets recorded. So if we were to, each time we overcome a bad habit, each time we, we uh, change a negative emotion into a positive emotion, we're doing it for the whole planet. We're not just doing it for ourselves. So one enlightened being can, can, can counter a lot of negativity. And so each time we meditate, each time we sit, there's a way of looking at our practices being an important impact on the whole planet, on everybody, on the consciousness, because we are all connected. And I had that experience when I first came around here years ago. I sat down and everybody disappeared. I said, where'd they go? <laughs> and it took me years to figure out what that was about. But at first it was like, oh man, what is this? Everybody disappeared. I had this experience that we were all one, but I didn't know how to make sense of it. But that's, that's the reality of the situation. And, and these teachings are really important because they're not really about believing. It's really about seeing for yourself. And so, and you can see it sometimes when I'll speak for this town a little more than a year ago when during the marathon, when the bombs went off, people were running towards the explosions. They weren't running away from it. What's up with that? Yeah, you could say that, but I think it has more to do with, with our, our, our natural compassion and our altruistic nature to support each other and to, and to help, that's right, and move towards even putting yourself at risk because you're not looking at yourself as me and, and them. You're seeing this all as one. And the same happened with 9-11. For a moment there, everybody came together. They forgot what political party they were associated with. It didn't last long, but it lasted a little bit. <laughs> and so this is, this is what I'm saying, and you can see it all the time, that there's this natural movement towards each other when we forget about ourselves and we seek to support someone else. And so, so, that's, so when you really think about it, when you reflect on this idea, this illusion of separateness, it really causes us to be fearful and to be in pain and to not feel compassion towards the other. And so the Buddha talked about this idea of wise, wise reflection. 
in terms of what we call right intention. And right intention is intention of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Because when there's greed in the mind, then, then we're, we're willing to do anything. There's no shame in the mind when there's greed there. And when there's ill will there, there's no shame in the mind what we will do. And when there's confusion, not knowing, then we're, kinda, we're not home. We're, nobody's home. But it's spaced out. And so it's this idea of thinking about, thinking thoughts of renunciation or generosity is important. Thinking thoughts of loving kindness, of love, of compassion is really important. Thinking about how things are and about getting clarity about how things are. Being, what, being with what is, not with what we want. That by generating wisdom and understanding, that there's a peace. There's a peace that comes from understanding what ails us. There's a peace that comes from how, understanding how things work. And so this idea of wise reflection and right thinking is really, really important for a lot of reasons. And I can share some experience, one of my experiences, when I, when I think about it, now, like I've been in recovery some, from substance abuse for coming up on 30 years, and one of the first things that helped me when I came around here was Larry Rosenberg. He, he was my teacher, and in those days we used to have a, a half an hour interview once a week. And I remember him telling me that I had to let go of this identity as a recovering substance abuser or recovering alcoholic, that I had to let go of that. And, and, and I did, and it wasn't that, but, but it's, it's this understanding of the language we use, how we see ourselves and seeing myself as a spiritual being having a human experience, that I was connected with other people and that it was helpful for me because here we have some practices that help us renunciate or give up things. Like we talk, we talk about, we reflect on the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, for you folks, the Buddha is obviously is a person like us who became enlightened. So we all have Buddha nature. You need to understand that. Christ consciousness or however, uh, Kuan Yin energy, whatever you want to call it. There's divinity there. And that there's, there's the Dharma or there's teachings, the Buddhist teachings that help us to gain release or to become uh, free from suffering or to suffer less, alleviate suffering. And that the Sangha is a community of people, like-minded people, that help us. And so for some people, the Sangha may be uh, determined by the monastics that are practicing, but in a wider sense, it's not just the monastics, it's not just the people that are sitting here. I see the Sangha as the whole planet of the whole universe or whatever. And so, so we reflect on the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. We reflect on our morality or integrity and that because we hold the precepts, at least when we come here, when we're on retreat, and the precepts, precepts are not to steal, steal, not to kill, not to lie, not to take in consequence, and not to get engaged in sexual activity that's detrimental. So it's basically non-harming. But you have to have a certain quality of awareness or mindfulness to understand that and to reflect on, okay, I want to do this, but no, I can't do that. So when lust arises in the mind, what do we do? 
where we have a practice, we call it right effort. And one thing to do with right effort is first thing, if, if lust arises, then you have to do, or let's just, maybe it's easier to, to talk about ill will. So ill will arises or hate arises, what do we do? The opposite of that is loving kindness. Now it's not just to say, okay, I got this hate, so I'm gonna think loving kindness. There has to be an acceptance of the hate. And it's hard because some of us have this idea of we're good yogis and we don't hate. So because we don't hate, we don't recognize it, and so we do the loving kindness in order to get rid of the hate. But that doesn't work. So it's genuinely being this like self-honesty, seeing the, uh, you know, the, the hates in the mind. It's not personal, but because we, we identify with our thoughts, we identify with our feelings, which we don't have to do, but when we do, it's hard because that's me, and I'm, you know, and I've, I have some of my clients, they fight me vehemently to keep their, their hatred because they see it as part of themselves instead of realizing, no, it's just it's, it's a state of mind. And that when hatred comes, there's a way of, of abandoning it. This is what right effort is about, is once an unwholesome mind state like hatred arises, how to abandon it. And that's just one part of it. So you abandon it by how? So you can, you can use the opposite, which is love and kindness, the second way you can abandon it is to reflect on the negative consequences of hatred, what it leads to. Nobody wants to be around somebody who's angry. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> and not to mention what it does to our immune system. And so if we can reflect on the consequences of it, that could help. And the third way we can, we can work on it is to consciously divert attention away from it and focus on something else. So sometimes when we were, we're you know, and, and it's interesting because when I first came around 12-step um, programs, when I had ill will towards somebody, they told me to pray for the person. And I wanted to smack the person that told me that because I wasn't <laughs> feeling that. But there is something to praying for the person. But the idea of praying for the person is to divert attention away from the, hate, the ang hatred and then towards something else. And of course, what happens when, you, when you're around here for a while and you uh, being with an object, and a lot of times the d instruction is to be with the object and when your mind gets involved in something else to come back to the object. Well, sometimes when there's hatred and it's really that strong in the, in the mind, if the mindfulness is strong enough, we actually make the hatred the object of awareness. And we do that really basically by feeling the sensation because all of these emotions, interestingly enough, the emotions, before we become aware of emotions, there's sensations in the body. And so a lot of times we can catch them in the body, the sensation. And with me, it'll be, in this, it'll be like, it'll be this tightness. It, it, you know, my jaws might get tight. It's, there's some phys physical manifestations of the the hatred, so if we're able to just be with the sensation without calling it hatred, and just be with the sensation, that can be very helpful so that that can help us go deeper into, well, what is this and what happens, what can happen is as you look at the hatred, you might discover that below that there's fear. And you know, you might see, see the anger first, then the fear, but as we investigate and explore it, and we just, allow it to be there, create space for it. I, I like to talk about mindfulness in the practice as creating a bigger container to hold whatever comes up. 
So I refer to this process as the salt test. So you can take, I can take this eight ounce glass and um, put a teaspoon of salt in there and when you drink that, it's gonna be salty. But if I create a bigger container with more water, then the same teaspoon of salt is not, doesn't have the same impact. So on some level, part of our process is to have a bigger mind or to open up and expand uh, to, um, ex you know, to expand the context in which we're looking at things. That makes sense? And so there's wise reflection, and so there's ways of dealing with this stuff, but we have to reflect on it and, and understand first, before it happens, how we're gonna handle it. So that's the reflection before and then during, okay, there's anger here, okay, um, how am I gonna deal with it? And so for me, once again, going back to my recovery, I was in, in a number of groups besides 12-step groups, and one of the groups I was in it was called the Harvard Self-Help Group, and we would actually talk about what our triggers were and what were the situations we would be in that might trigger us to want to use or want to uh, go back to negative behavior. And what we discovered was that by thinking about it in advance and reflecting on, okay, if this happens, how are you going to handle that? So you have to prepare yourself is what we call in the sports world mental preparation. As you prepare yourself and you reflect on, okay, if that happens, what's the skillful means of, of getting out of it or, you know, maybe going to a meeting or just noticing and then removing yourself? So, so my experience was... Um, so I went by to visit a friend, which one of the things you learn when you're in recovery, the people you used to hang with, not a good idea to hang with them. <laughs> you know, if you hang out at Joe's Bar and Grill, not a good idea to go down to Joe's Bar and Grill until you get to the point where you can be around it if that's what you want to do. But for me, because I went into a situation which was a trigger for me and I had pre-planned it, I was able to say, oh, I see you're busy. Uh, I'll catch you later. And I just went. Uh, to a meeting or I went to be around friends and I talked it through and it was fine and then it got to the point where I could be around people who were drinking and I didn't have to get upset because somebody could just drink one beer and leave the rest of the six pack alone I, that just didn't register with me it was really weird it was like you're supposed to drink the whole thing <laughs> and so 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 it was just this idea of uh, de-identifying with you know I'm a I'm a recovering addict or, or, or whatever. It's more about, no, I don't have to use any labels. I know I, I do the precepts, I don't take intoxicants. And so the precepts would create a safety and it actually enabled me to be more at peace and, and to actually meditate easier. I say this to people all the time, especially when I work with the inmates. I said, well, you know, you can't go out there and rob store 24 and then come in here and meditate and think you're gonna be okay. And every time somebody comes through the door or walks in the meditation hall, you're going to be, one eye is going to be looking. You're going to be thinking if they see me. And then if they say, well, let's go down to store 24 and get a soda, then you go in there. You've got to be, you know, put your glasses, uh, sunglasses on and hope nobody sees you. And, you know, because you know at some point that's going to come back to you because you read what you saw. And so there, there, there's a process here of just reflecting and understanding and sometimes just observing, okay, I'm angry and then I snapped, I yelled. And then, oh, I can't take those words back now. You know, what the consequences are of that. And so it's, it's really, does this make sense what I'm talking about? So it's really about, there's a place for thinking, there's a place for 
reflecting, and even it's funny because coming from the sports world, um, when I first came around here, ambition was something to be avoided. So you don't really evaluate your practice, if you will. You know, how's your practice going? Because, you know, there was a lot of ambition and whatever, so you just go. But it's really important to evaluate your practice. It's really important to see, okay, am I developing concentration? And then when I'm concentrated, am I using, am I directing my mind at, at greed, hatred, and delusion, or am I directing my mind at, um, at wanting to penetrate, you know, what is this? What am I investigating? Am I thinking, of, am I investigating, okay, why do I feel the way that I feel? Why is my mind, why am I relating to this young man the way I'm relating to him, whether it's, it's friendly or not friendly? Why am I, you know, so we start to look at the mind, this, this meditating, and we realize when it's an unwholesome mind state, like greed, hatred, or delusion, it's not going to be a good result. We're not going to see clearly. It's going to be distorted think, uh, um, perception, and that a big part of it is just realizing that, that okay, um, and then sometimes we have to go through that mind state of being angry, and some of us, you know, because we're polite, we're angry and we don't even know we're angry. I'll give you another example of what happened. I used to uh, get gasoline in the gas station across the street, and one day, I, when I was working at the prison at the time, I went over and got gas. And so I left, got a full tank, and I get to the prison, and I realized that he didn't put the gas cap on my car, so there was no gas cap on. So I, so I came back, and I said, hey, you know, um, it was a different guy. The person that was here, you know, they didn't put my gas cap on. He says, well, we don't have no gas cap. I don't, we don't know what you're talking about. And even though I was speaking kind of nicely, I, I suspected there was an energy behind it <laughs> because he was reacting and I was reacting. And as a result, I stopped getting gas there for at least six months. Now, how crazy is that? I mean, there's a gas station right there. And then one day I was sitting and meditating and I was reflecting and I realized, George, maybe there was some energy there, the nonverbal communication, like your tonality and your body language was maybe aggressive. So maybe, maybe you should go over there and, and uh, make amends. So I went over and I talked to him and I said, you know, um, all I really wanted was for you to say, yes, I had been there or no, I didn't see it, whatever. I, I didn't, you know, that's all I wanted. I didn't want you to buy another gas cap, but I just wanted to, to acknowledge that it, there was one on there when I came. And so, I'm right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but anyway, so I, so I apologized to him. And the interesting thing was, because I apologized, and of course I had to get uh, oil change or whatever, so he did whatever he was supposed to do, and he didn't charge me. So it was just this idea of me owning my, uh, but at the, at the time, because I'm a good yogi, I didn't really see that I was being angry. I thought I was being reasonable. But in actuality, his reaction was telling me, no, that there's something else there. And so this is where the reflection, and sometimes it's going back and redoing something months or years afterwards. We don't necessarily have to do it in the time because the way my experience is, sometimes the mind is much quicker than we are, or these bad habits, or these, these uh, fixed ways of being are much quicker and, and much more embedded than we know and sometimes it takes a reflection and really think about okay so what went wrong with that interaction 
what's my responsibility and can I go in and, and maybe change it? And so through word, thought, or deed, uh, we can do that. So if, we can, if I can see what my intention was, even though my intention was one way, the emotional component to that was, was colored by the hatred. Does it make sense? And so I don't want to talk a lot more. I just wanted to, to kind of talk about it a little bit. And there were, there were one or two things that I wanted to mention. Because one of the things that I've been doing recently is um, making the right effort. And, and there's a whole thing. There's a guy down the road called Sean Accor. And he, has, he wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. Anybody hear about that? So he talks about five habits, uh, research habits, that we can embody. And I don't know if I can find them, but I think I memorized them. That you can, you know, so his, the whole theory of this whole happiness experience and this positive psychology, I love it because it's, it's proven what the Buddha said many years ago, right effort, is understanding. So when an unwholesome sta state like uh, hatred arises, how to abandon it, that's one. But the second part of that is how to prevent it from arising in the first place. And so the other side of that is something that's wholesome, how to have a wholesome mind state like happiness arise when it hasn't arisen. And then once having had it arise, how to maintain it or perfect it. And so if you're happy or if you're in a jhana like, like I talked about before, all the hindrances like greed, hatred, delusion, sloth, torpor, which is kind of uh, dullness of mind, restlessness of worry, I'm sure you all know that one, and doubt. And that each one of those uh, aspects of the jhana hinders the other one of those um, hindrances. I won't go into it, but the reality of, so it's more about, we can do a lot just by focusing on being happy and making a conscious effort to develop the right frame of mind or the right thinking, to develop the thoughts of renunciation. And so with the happiness advantage of research is thus, that we are not successful, then we're happy. The research says we're happy first, then we're successful. And the reason for that is when you're in a positive mind state, that your cognitive functioning is much better. That, that what I mean by that is your thinking and your feeling and your perspective is more wide. And that actually, when you're in positive, he talked about it, there's a thing that gets released, which I didn't know, it's called dopamine. I guess that's where they got the word dope from. <laughs> so, and the dopamine is released when we have a positive mind state, and what it does, it enhances, it turns on our learning centers. And so there's this simple thing about, he said find, one thing he said to do is find three things, three new things each day to be grateful for. It takes 45 seconds to do that. Three things to be grateful for. So how, can that, how could that possibly help? Well, think about it. So if you do that for, and if you do it for 21 days to develop a habit, but if you do it for double that for six weeks, then it becomes, you know, a neural net. So you do that, and what happens is you're actually training your perception to see something to be grateful for each time. And so that's one of them. Second we talked about is just smiling three times a day. <laughs> three times a day, just smiling three times a day, that, that changes everything. And, and this is, we talk about psychosomatic and this somatic psych. 
cycle. In other words, if you smile, your body will change and your, at, your mind will change. You, you, you know, it's like when you feel fit, you'll feel fit. And so it's this idea of smiling three times a day. You don't even have to smile at anybody. You can smile at yourself. <laughs> but if you smile at somebody and somebody smiles at you, 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 you know, it changes things. And so if you smile, then your mind will, will, will catch up with the smile. Third thing he talked about is what he calls the doubler. And, and that is, and this is interesting because when I work with student athletes, I used to tell them, or pros as well, catch yourself doing something right. Because most of us are so, and because psychology used to be based, based on pathology, so we're really good at telling you what's wrong. But we don't really catch ourselves doing something right. And so when you do something right, like say if you had a, a nice experience, like especially around here driving, if you're driving and you let somebody in, maybe you, if you write about it, you will re-experience it so you will have a double. See, because the brain doesn't know the difference between what we think about and what we experience. So if you experience something, then write about it, you, 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 get, to, you get to re-experience it again. That's why they call it the doublet. Now, if you turn that around, this is what I think most of us are doing. When something's wrong, we're thinking about that, and we're getting a doubler on that as well. <laughs> and it becomes a, a way of being, so that we feel bad, so we have these thoughts that are consistent with being bad, feeling bad. And because those thoughts of feeling bad are there, it enhances the feeling of feeling bad. So it becomes a fixed way of being, so that the thinking has happened automatically. And so this idea of doubler is really important. Now, because of the social media we have now, there's there's many ways to write somebody an encouraging note. Somebody you haven't seen in a while, you can send them a text or email, or you can even call them, or you maybe have coffee with them. And you sit down and, and just have a two minute, it takes two minutes to write a little note about how much you appreciate somebody, or how much you love somebody, or that sort of thing. So that's just for them. And, and, they, and it doesn't take a lot of time to do that. And so there's other ways, and then there's ways of reflecting on love or reflecting on, on um, the fact that, like, Titnan Han used to talk about it all the time. Well, I think he still does. He's still alive. But he, he used to talk about appreciating the non-toothache. <laughs> and so oftentimes we don't even know we have teeth until we have a toothache. <laughs> so he's saying appreciate the non-toothache or the non-headache or the non-frustration, that we can appreciate that. And, and this is part of the contemplation of the mind in the Satipatthana Sutta, is knowing when there's lust in the mind, when there's a mind without lust. Knowing when there's greed in the mind, and when there's a mind without greed. Knowing when there's peace in the mind, or happiness, or joy in the mind, and recognizing that. And so when we start to reflect on it and think about it, we might start working back and understand what we were doing to cause the arising of the joy, of the happiness. And so when this happiness, research habits, that's just five of them, but there's, there's really more. Any act of kindness, just being patient and kind no matter where we go. Speaking to people, acknowledging them, another human being. All of these things have an impact. And I'd love to share this one. Uh, there's, there was a research study done on doctors. Now doctors, they come up with diagnoses and there's a, there's a, there's a term they use for doctors who come up with an initial diagnosis and they don't change it. It's called anchoring. And what they found is, if you go to visit your doctor and you give them a little chocolate, 
And they say, oh, thank you, and they put the chocolate away. Because one of the things about happiness is when you, when you plan something that makes you happy and you think about it, it actually changes your attitude. So if you give the doctor some chocolate, <laughs> the anchoring goes down, and, the, and their diagnosis gets improved. Because <laughs> think about that, because they, their mind goes into a positive mind state, so their cognitive functioning is, is much more accurate. And so it's, it's just little things like that. And, and, and they, they've done these studies where, like, they have, they'll have some kind of engagement, like, if, if you uh, are rude to somebody and they go in and they're waiting for somebody, uh, they'll wait on them. If, if they're in a certain mi mind state, they'll interrupt right away. And in other ways, if you, so you can prime somebody. Priming means you can um, condition them in a way where they're going to see things a certain way. And so if you think about the happiness or thinking about, thinking about what you can do versus what you can't do, then you're actually priming yourself for success. And so I'll, I won't spend a lot more time. Um, I have some things here um, that I want to talk about. So maybe I'll talk about one. There's this um, gentleman, his name is um, Tony Schwartz, he wrote a book, I think it has something to do with neuroplasticity, I think I want to say the brain and the mind or something like that. But anyway, he, he had this process where he worked with people with obsessive compulsive disorder. And so these are people who are always washing their hands, they have this compulsion to wash their hands. And so they actually call it the quantum Zeno effect, it has to do with quantum physics, so that he would teach them this four step mindfulness process. So whenever the thought, uh, wash your hands would come in, they would say, um, they, they, would, uh, lab they would label it as um, their brain is not, you know, their brain is not functioning properly. You know, that's what they would tell themselves. The brain's not, uh, you know, they'll say it's not true, I say, it's not true. And then the second part of it would be they reattribute it to, okay, because the brain is, you know, the chemically imbalanced or whatever it is. And then, and then the third part of it is to refocus and focus on something else. So what he would teach them to do is every time the thought would come up, um, wash your hands, that you would replace that thought and focus it on going to the garden. So you go work in your garden. And what will happen, though, is, and then you revalue it, and that's the, the fourth part, is, is revaluing it. So what will happen is initially, and this is where the persistence comes in, the, go, the wash your hands is going to be stronger than the go to the garden. But if you keep thinking, go to the garden, go to the garden, and if you hold that in mind and you keep thinking it, then it creates the wave function. So instead of the wave function going to um, washing your hands, it will actually go to, go to the garden. You can reprogram yourself. And I hope it's not too technical what I'm saying, but, but this, is, this is really what life is about. It's like we have all these possibilities, and then with intentionality and, and attention, it collapses to the one that we have. And so what we think is really important. And this guy, uh, I, I went, this was years ago, I was hosting, um, I was working for this organization that was hosting uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and he was at, uh, I think it's, Mutual Life Hall or one of the down, downtown was one of these uh, halls we were having them in. And he walks out on stage and he says, I think therefore I am not. And it was so cool <laughs> because, because we think 
therefore we are, and that's what Descartes said, but you know, that's not really true, because there's no thinker there if you really see it, it's just thoughts. But, but the whole, whole point is that um, we have this idea about thinking. So this gentleman, his name is um, Tracy, he said, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. So you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. And I can go on and on. This, there's a book by William James, As a Man Thinketh, and he also has one, As a Woman Thinketh. So whatever you think, you become. And so thinking is really important. So whether we want to ignore it or not, that's one thing. But it's a good idea to see what thoughts or what we got our mind on, like Dr. Dre said. So if I have my mind on frustration, I got frustration on my mind. <laughs> and we need to understand, if you have mind on happiness, you got happiness on your mind. If you have your mind on peace, you have peace on your mind. And so that's, that's you know, I'll end with what uh, Ajahn Chah said. He says, when I let go a little bit, I have a little peace. When I let go a lot, I have a lot of peace. When I let go completely, I have complete peace. And so let's just end with a moment of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.